motivation to the people, that's the uplift. Prosperity and growth, we can discuss this. Spread the love, cause I believe in family unity. And equal justice, and equal opportunity. Let's make it great again, fulfill a happy vacancy. It costs you nothing, give you knowledge, yeah, this is free. Us together talking about it, that's the key. Bring the truth, bare facts, that's just me. Ain't gonna stop me for talking about it. Ain't gonna stop me for talking about it. Tonight, I'm going to talk about some things to a man of character do. But we're talking about respect. Building a community. The idea is for us to help each other build and grow. Peace and blessings, family. Welcome to the Bear Facts, Life Lessons with the Sugar Bear, where the goal is to motivate and inspire. Thanks to your love and support, we're shaking and baking, moving and grooving in 72 cities within seven countries around the globe. I'm truly excited with the growth of the podcast. And with you checking in like you do, I'll continue to hustle like there is no finish line. It's Hispanic Heritage Month. Each year, Americans observe National Hispanic Heritage Month from September 15th to October 15th, which happens to be your boy's birthday. The observation started in 1968 under President Lyndon Johnson as Hispanic Heritage Week by celebrating the histories, cultures, and contributions of American citizens whose ancestors come from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, Central, and South America. It was expanded by President Ronald Reagan in 1988 to cover a 30-day period starting on September 15th and then on October 15th. It was enacted into law on October 17th, 1988 on the approval of Public Law 100-402. The day of September 15th is significant because it's the anniversary of independence for Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. In addition, Mexico and Chile celebrate their Independence Days on September 16th and September 18th, respectively. Columbus Day, or Dia de la Raza, is October 12th, which also falls within this 30-day period. Today, we have a special guest, one of my fraternity brothers. I've known this brother for a very long time. Uh, he's actually known as Dr. Medina now, and I'm going to have him you know, speak on his own uh, existence and talk to you guys about some really important things regarding Hispanic heritage. We're going to first start out on the topic of colorism, and he's going to speak to that and some other things. So, you know, colorism is actually the prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. Dr. Medina, welcome. Thank you for having me. And um, again, I look forward to uh, this kind of conversation. Uh, let me just provide for the audience just a little bit of background about myself. Uh, most recently, a minted uh, PhD. So I, uh, a lot of my work and my scholarship really is um, investigating Latinx identity and how to center blackness um, as part of um, that overall identity that we have. Um, and part of that has a lot to do with my own lived experience growing up as a Dominican-American in Washington Heights and always sort of struggling with my own identity when I had relatives um, who phenotypically uh, would resemble black Americans. And yet um, there was this feeling of, well, well, you're not really black, you're Dominican. And that caused a lot of confusion. And in a sense, it also caused a lot of colorism. Right. Right. And so for a lot of folks who are not aware of what colorism is, uh, I think uh, Lupita Nyong'o uh, said it best, right, that colorism is the is a cousin of racism. OK. And that's a very powerful statement. And here's why. Um, in America, we operate around a racial hierarchy that is primarily a, what we call a black and white binary. Right. And this is where people fit within these different social constructs around the 60s is when um, 
many um, Hispanics, um, as I like to refer to them as Latinx, uh, to be more inclusive of, of the variety of our different identities because we as a people are not a monolith. What, what, what we're finding is that as this wave of immigration was happening um, throughout the 50s and 60s and really started bursting on the scenes in the 80s with many Dominicans um, coming to, um, to America, what we started to realize then is that it was starting to create, again, this new sort of categorization of what it means to be Hispanic in America. And so, again, being seen as ethnicity, as many of you have seen even on census forms, um, how you identify um, is based on you could be black, you could be white, you could be an Asian. And then again, they have created this category known as Hispanic, which, again, it is intended as a way to identify you as part of an ethnicity. Well, but you, haven't they done other? They have done other. And I could sit here and tell you how the census will continue to manipulate uh, the, the way we crunch numbers um, in, in ways where it is not beneficial to the Hispanic population. Uh, because in a way, it is meant to ensure that um, there's always um, a majority in control. I mean, that is really the overall purpose of the census. And so someone like myself, uh, as a person who does research in this area, I have always found the, the census as very problematic because it creates the, the, this division between Hispanics and black Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot deeper than that, right? Because now we add in this, again, this, this phenomenon uh, of colorism, right? And so, again, I start thinking about how this country operates around racism, but colorism is really where you start seeing a lot of those micro-macro aggressions. For example, I have family members um, on my mother's side of the family that phenotypically, if you looked at them and they were walking anywhere in the streets of America, you would just make the assumption that, hey, they resemble a black American because that is the way that the narrative has been scripted for many of us in the society as to how we profile a black body. OK, and so they fit many of those profiles. And why do they? Well, part of that is because uh, for many people who, who are not aware of this, um, the majority of enslaved Africans that were brought to America were actually brought to the Caribbean and different parts of Latin America. With actually Brazil um, having having shipped to Brazil um, 11 million enslaved Africans. What people don't realize is that in America, only 400,000 enslaved Africans made it to where we live today in the United States. That's a very important point, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. So why don't you expound on that just a little bit more, because that's like the triangle slave trade, right? It's co correct, right? So again, the, the transatlantic uh, slave trade, um, which uh, you know, for many of you who, who don't know uh, much about that, really, that is sort of where particularly Spaniards and Europeans were just looking for ways to, again, uh, create properties um, out of enslaved Africans and bring them to different parts of the Americas. And Hispaniola, you know, which is known today as Haiti and Dominican Republic, really became the gateway uh, for a lot of the, the slave trades. Um, and it really formed a triangle in ways that um, enslaved Africans were brought here um, in the hulls of ships um, and then, you know, sort of shipped and then sold um, throughout uh, the Americas. And so when you start seeing many, you know, Latinos or, or Hispanics who phenotypically have this body profile of a black American, um, for the most part, um, in America, they are black. However, when you're outside of America and you're looking, you're out in Latin American countries, a lot of it is um, how they classify them by class as well as their skin color. And this is where colorism becomes very problematic. And so I'm not sure if many, um, you've probably heard the term mestizo. 
Yes. Okay. Well, mestizo uh, comes from the uh, racial ideology of um, uh, mestizaje, which is basically the combination of indigenous, African, and European bloods, which then make up a mestizo or a mestiza. And many Hispanics um, prefer that label of being seen as a mixed people, right? Because again, they want to honor all the various um, sort of blood lineage that they, that, you know, um, that they have in them. Yet, where that becomes problematic is that by pushing this sort of mixed race sort of ideology is that it is also used as a way to diminish Africanness. It's, as a matter of fact, when we talk about being Hispanic or Latino, we talk about our Latinidad, right? And that is the way by which um, we affiliate socially, um, how we are politically, you know, it's our affiliation and how we practice that. So I'll give you an example. As I said, I'm a Dominican American. So people would look at me and just assume, hey, Alfredo probably um, probably enjoys eating his mangu, you know, his rice and beans, listening to bachate, merengue. And while I enjoy all of that because that is part of my dominiquidad, right? My Dominicanness, my latinidad. The truth is that a lot of that also is that I enjoy growing up in a hip hop culture around many black Americans. Right. And so I tend to gravitate more towards the black culture, not necessarily because I'm sitting here saying, hey, I'm black American. But a lot of that comes from African roots. Even the music we listen to, like merengue, is African roots, bachata, African roots. That's all forms of African music that has then been adopted you know, through different instruments being used in the American public to create their own sound. And that is no different than hip hop culture, knowing that that is a culture that was created by both, you know, um, many blacks and Puerto Ricans played a pr prominent role in that. But yet when you talk about that, they look at you and say, but you're not black because people already saw, see you as, well, you can't be because this is how I picture you looking like. And then that creates sort of this issue of colorism about who can belong and who can't but it also creates advantages and disadvantages, right? That also means how I'm allowed to ex exercise a certain privilege as a, a, a lighter skinned Latino. You got to stay away from that word privilege, brother. You know, that that's a, that's a buzzword right now. <laughs> it is. And listen, as much as that is a buzzword, we as Latinos have a hard time with this. And this is why, because let's keep it real and let's keep it a buck is that there are many Latinos that truly believe that based on the fairness of their skin and how they label themselves, that the closer their proximity is to whiteness, the greater their social mobility. And that is something that has been going on here. Histor I mean, it's historical and it continues to happen because I know I was raised under that impression that why would you want to associate yourself with being black? Right. Because black is perceived as darker. It is perceived as a negative connotation. And why would you want to hinder any progress that you can make as an individual? Because they see it as, well, if you are much darker, then you know you're not going to get that social mobility. So why put yourself in that bucket in the first place? Well, it's because if you look at my family heritage, you'll see that there's a lot of African. But even they have a hard time understanding that because they have been sort of raised to believe that Black is something that is not attributed to you. And so they use different labels like um, 
your indio or traguino, uh, the different types of shading. Um, but with that comes a privilege because if you are traguino or you are indio or you are claro, uh, again, light skin, um, there are certain privileges that are afforded to you that wouldn't be afforded to darker skin Latinos. Well, the interesting thing about that is that there's a previous episode that I speak on fake and black. And I talk about black versus white. And but what you were just saying reminds me of our brother, the Cablasian brother, Tiger Woods. You want to speak on that? Yes. So thinking about also um, his upbringing, and I don't know much about Tiger Woods. Again, I don't study enough about the, the racialization of Asians. I do. And I can speak about it from the black experience, because many of the black identity models that exist in America are the ones that are then being used in order to help better understand um, those who are uh, darker skinned Latinos. Well, I brought him up because there has been this thing. And in the past, I was thinking about some of the ethnic uh, features or language that's used to typically represent our women when they were doing videos and being models and all those things. And those are the kind of the terms. If they came up with some type of Indian or Asian heritage, then they were more readily available to get jobs. Correct. And you're right. Um, and if you look at someone like Tiger Woods, and I can tell you that the first time I saw Tiger Woods, the first thing that it didn't jump to me immediately, I saw Tiger Woods and I said, oh, he's black. There's something uh, racially ambiguous about Tiger Woods. And being racially ambiguous is a form of privilege, right? Because, again, you're looking at someone and thinking, well, what is he? Is, is he black? Is he mixed with something? And the minute that you are mixed, you are already afforded a certain privilege that many others. <laughs> exactly, right. You know, but phenotypically, when you are, again, you know, based on this body profile, and there are a lot of theories about that, right? And there's also part of what we call a street cred theory, right? That that is sort of how you are perceived in the streets, right? So if you're someone who's coming from New York City and you've been raised in an environment that is predominantly black and brown by which you are sort of traversing between two different worlds, depending on how your peers perceive you is how you are then labeled. So again, you don't sometimes own the right to give yourself that label, even though we know that who we are. Like, I know that I am a black Latino. However, society has decided that, listen, we're going to be judge and jury and determine for you whether you fit within that profile. And I think that Tiger Woods had a real difficult issue with that because probably growing up, he wasn't racialized black. He was probably racialized in with many different types of cultures. And because of that, to take ownership of him under being black, I think that was for him, it almost felt like, well, then that's negating my Asian side. And he probably didn't want to own it completely because he probably grew up in an environment that really didn't promote blackness in the way, let's say you were growing up with blackness, different than the way I was raised to understand my blackness. And so again, um, he was, he's pr pretty much a good one to be used as a model, but let's also take one more current. Um, drawing a blank on her name, uh, the, the the winner right now of the uh, uh, tennis player. Uh, oh, the young sister, Osaka. Osaka. Japanese and Haitian. Okay. Yet, there are people out there that want to sort of, in any way as possible, to diminish her blackness. Right? They want to push that Asian uh, banner as hard as they can. And you can see it in the way the, the media reports it. And what I love about the way she carries herself is that while she honors and embraces both of her heritage, she wants people to also know that, yes, 
maybe there's some phenotypic features about me that will draw you to the conclusion that I may be more Asian than I am black, but I am Haitian. And she owns that part. And I think a part of that is important because Haitians by far are probably the one group of black individuals, both in the Caribbean and in America, that probably have faced the most discrimination of any black people in America. Well, they're still very independent. They're the black country who actually fought the French and maintained their independence, correct? Correct. Not only did they maintain their independence, they actually freed the Dominican Republic of slavery. Haiti was the first republic to break away and gain its independence. It then helped the Dominican Republic as we know it today to free itself from slavery. Now, we're not going to delve into it because we don't have the time during this podcast, but that also has had economic ramifications against Haiti. This is why you have people who consider them to be less than. Correct. Uh, Not just less than in terms of many of them have preserved, while they preserve parts of their French heritage in terms of the religion with Catholicism and the way they speak French, but Patois. But more importantly, um, they preserve their blackness. I mean, if you look at that island and think about how it's split, Haiti is suffering financially, not just because of what the Dominican Republic has done in terms of uh, putting economic sanctions to ensure that they can control immigration. But for many people who are not aware that part of the way Haiti gained its independence was through a treaty with France that France basically said, well, you're going to have to pay us back. Haiti, to this day, as part of their independence and the reason why they're one of the poorest countries in the world is because they're still paying a debt back to France and France hasn't forgiven them. And if you look over in the Dominican Republic on, you know, sort of on the east side of them, right, that's a country that that sees itself more as a mulatto state, a mixed state, whereas Haiti is very proud of being black. And that is where a lot of that tension and division is, is there. And part of that has a lot to do with many Dominicans who don't want to become a black state. Let's just touch back on the Latinx again real quick, because I know you had some uh, differences between what Latino, Latinx, explain all of that. Okay, so, I mean, growing up, um, I've always used the term Hispanic. And, you know, that is a, a, that is a government-issued term that I really don't support. Um, although there are many people who are out there who consider themselves Hispanic, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? That is the government term by how we classify people from Spanish-speaking countries. However, as I started learning more about my own background and my own history, I started to adopt Latino and Latina as a way of one is to ensure that part of that romance language is preserved as part of my own identity. However, here I am, you know, well in my 40s, almost closing into my 50s, and I'm learning more from the people who are participants in my studies who are progressives. They're Gen Zers, and they tend to use the word Latinx, right? And for many people who don't know how to pronounce it, um, it's not Latinx, but it's Latinx. And so Latinx um, is a term that has been adopted to provide more inclusivity, specifically for uh, people who are not gender conforming, uh, many members from the LGBTQ community, and also as a way to remove the A and the O and to downplay sort of this whole issue of masculine versus feminine. And I found it to be very empowering. That's not a very popular term. Many old school folks like myself uh, took issue with me using that term in my dissertation. Many still take issue with that. And a lot of it is because people fear change. They fear that difference. 
But I use that term exclusively because um, Latinos in particular have a lot of problems with about being inclusive about people who come from a variety of different identities and our intersections and what that means. And so for me, that is something I've learned to adopt from a lot of the, um, the progressives and, you know, and millennials and Gen Zers um, and start being much more inclusive. So that's kind of where that comes from when we use that term. Dr. Medina, I want to thank you. It was excellent, brother. I appreciate you. Questions, comments regarding this episode, hit me up, barefax007 at yahoo.com or the Barefax Facebook page. Till we do this again, my friends, keep a smile on your face, peace in your heart, and a sugar bear on your mind. And remember, dare to blaze your own path. It's so much fun. Peace. This episode of the Bear Facts is powered by Buzzsprout, executive produced by J. Will for RJW Enterprises Incorporated, music coordinated by Icewater for Indicave Studios. The Sugar Bear is available to respond to your feedback, questions, comments, and show ideas. Use the email bearfacts007 at yahoo.com. Continue to check for the Bear Facts on your favorite podcast platforms. 